from the sports of the SecondCity.com studios, it's the Second Winded Podcast. Now, here's your host, Brad Robinson. Thank you, Dan Levy, and welcome into the Second Winded Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Robinson. We've got a lot to get to in a little bit. We're going to talk to BleacherNation.com's Brett Taylor about all things Cubs. Cubs off to a wonderful start, 12-8 and through the month of April, and they're doing it without hitting many home runs, which is a surprise given the amount of power bats they have in their lineup. But first, the Bears have made their first-round selection. Pick number seven overall, it's wide receiver out of West Virginia, Kevin White. Now, before we get to my thoughts on the selection, let's give you a little scouting report via NFL.com. Six foot three inches in height, 32 and five eighths arm lengths, 215 pounds, nine and a quarter inch hands. Strengths, his desired NFL frame for the position, goes to get the ball with consistency, had issues with drops in 2013 after transferring from Juco, but caught everything in sight in 2014. High points the ball, asked to run more types of routes in 2014, and delivered with increased productivity. Terrific inside release to beat press coverage, creates separation on crossers, and can stop on a dime on a hitch route. Makes defenders work to get him down after the catch, competes when the ball's in the air, Looks to turn upfield immediately after a short route, running with desire and some power. Weaknesses, pigeon-toed and runs heel-to-toe, allowed to play in space and must learn to get off the line of scrimmage against press coverage. Must answer questions about his top-end speed, wall-off blocker who could use more work in that area, average wiggle after the catch and relies on effort over suddenness to pick up yards after the catch. NFL comparison according to NFL.com. DeAndre Hopkins, though I've also heard him compared to Larry Fitzgerald. And Fitzgerald is someone who worked with him a little bit in the offseason. Bottom line, he's not just a product of West Virginia's system, he's talented. White showed off 23 reps on the bench press and a blazing 4-3-5-40 at the combine, proving he has top-end speed to go with size and strength. White came into West Virginia with very limited confidence, according to team insiders, but when he left, he'd realized his rare talent. White lacks the polish of Amari Cooper, but some teams already believe he has the best upside of any receiver in the draft. Now, when the Bears picked at 7, they had basically two choices, in my opinion. They had Kevin White out of West Virginia, who they took, or they had Vic Beasley, who went 8 to the Falcons, who was an outside linebacker out of Clemson. What would have been great for the Bears is had the Jets gone with Kevin White, and left Leonard Williams, a defensive end out of USC, for the Bears to take. But that didn't happen. So the Bears took the best player available, and White was the best player available. White's going to have to be very good. Wide receiver, while it was a need, was not the Bears' greatest need, and not even a top-five need. They have holes all over on defense. But that opportunity to address those holes weren't there unless they traded down. Now, I don't know if they tried to trade down. I don't know if they were made offers they didn't like, but if that was the case and they felt they got the best value out of the seventh pick, then I think they made the right call. Now, if you haven't seen a highlight reel of Kevin White, go to Google right now, look it up, go find some Kevin White. He's awe-inspiring. He's big, he's fast, he can go get the ball. He reminds me a little bit of Alshon Jeffrey. So now going forward, the Bears have a very strong crop of receivers. Now, we've heard this before. We heard it when Brandon Marshall was here with Marshall and Jeffrey and Martellus Bennett at the tight end position. 
Matt Forte catching balls out of the backfield. The options for quarterback Jay Cutler are all over the place. But they've added Eddie Royal as a legitimate slot receiver, and that's something the Bears haven't had. This selection isn't going to make Jay Cutler a better quarterback. Cutler's 31 years old. He's had plenty of weapons to work with over the past few years. He's pretty much plateaued. We've seen what Jay Cutler is. We know what he is. There's no more upside to Jay Cutler. So White doesn't come in and all of a sudden he gives this highly talented quarterback that's been without weapons someone to throw to. That's not the case here. The Bears are stuck with Cutler for the next year. Maybe two, but I'm guessing for one year. And what adding Kevin White does is give the Bears an extra option when they decide to bring in a new quarterback, whoever that may be. And it gives them a steady, young wide receiver core that'll be in place for years to come. With the rest of the draft, I expect the Bears to address a lot of the defensive needs. Now, outside of the second, third, maybe even fourth round, depending on who they can find or who drops to them, you don't expect... to starting players coming out of the later rounds of the draft. But you'd have to think that the Bears are going to stockpile defensive talent from here on out. So given the way the top of the draft shook out, given what was still available on the board, I think the Bears made the right call. I like Kevin White. I actually like him more than Amari Cooper. I think Cooper is going to be a great receiver, don't get me wrong. I think he's going to work excellent with the Oakland Raiders and he'd work excellent with any team that drafts him but I think Kevin White has that extra big playability that extra big body that extra red zone threat that the Bears can use now there's rumors that Martellus Bennett's on the trade block we'll see if anything comes of that Bennett's unhappy with the deal he signed two years ago a four-year deal that he's halfway through Matt Forte is not getting any younger He's also unhappy, wants a new contract, which the Bears would be wise not to give him, given his age and given the history of running backs going downhill once they hit the age of 30. So if you're talking about losing those two weapons in the coming year or years, the Bears needed to add another one. And that's what they did with Kevin White. You'll have White and Jeffrey as your bookends. And out of the slot, Eddie Royal. That's not a bad, uh, not a bad crop of receivers for the Bears to go forward. All right, let's welcome in this week's guest. He's the founder and uh, main contributor over at BleacherNation.com, though he has added a couple writers as of late. You can find him on Twitter at BleacherNation, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash BleacherNation. He's Brett Taylor. Brett, thanks for taking the time this week. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So a very solid start to the season for the Cubs, and if I'd have told you before the season started that Starlin Castro, Jorge Soler, Chris Bryant, and Anthony Rizzo would combine for six home runs in the first month, John Lester would be winless with an ERA north of six, Kyle Hendricks would be winless with a plus five ERA, and there'd be two key injuries in the bullpen to Justin Grimm and Neil Ramirez, you'd think I'm crazy, but here we are. Gosh, I would have thought, all right, did, did they at least get five or six wins? Well, and it's, you know, I suppose it's also interesting when we set it up like that, what it does for our, um, the way we think about how teams perform and how it's not always, um, there isn't a perfect system to, to getting to wins, um, because we could, we could play the same game, you know, with like on-base percentage and uh, their stolen bases and 
some of the other pitchers and say, see how good they've been. Um, so it is, it's just kind of funny how we almost forget every year, uh, you know, the different ways to, to come up with positive performances. But yeah, it's just been, it's just been amazing the way they have done it and to, you know, to, to win 12 of the first 20 games. Just fantastic. Yeah, and you bring up the on-base percentage and, you know, the seeing all the pitches and being patient at the plate. It's an approach that's been kind of new to a Cubs team that we've been used to watching the last few years. It seems now with a little more support in the lineup that these guys are approaching the at-bats differently with a lot more confidence that the guy in the lineup after them will be able to get the job done if they just get on base. Yeah, I mean, it's very foreign to Cubs fans to be watching these games where the other team's starting pitcher maybe hasn't even given up a ton of runs or hits or anything like that, but he's getting to the fourth and fifth inning and he's already got 80, 85 pitches. Uh, and it's just because the, the Cubs batters are, are wearing these guys down. And, um, you know, it, it starts at the top with Dexter Fowler. uh has just been a perfect fit for this lineup. Anthony Rizzo really uh, accepting that sort of number two hitter role, which is not, by the way, the sort of slap bunt hitter. He he hasn't been asked to move anybody over. Uh, it's just a matter of getting on base uh, by any means necessary. And, um, of course, Chris Bryant has been, uh, you know, maybe not the kind of performance that you would have expected following his, his trajectory. Uh, he still has yet to homer, which is kind of amazing. But he's been this unbelievably mature, patient, um, steady hitter. I, I mean. That top of the order has just got to be brutal for pitchers to get through right now, and you know that's exactly what you want your offense to be. I'm glad you brought up Dexter Fowler because uh, during the off season when the Cubs went and picked him up, uh, probably because of the you know slew of of prospects coming up and all the attention being on guys like Bryant and guys like Addison Russell and Javier Baez. It kind of flew under the radar a little bit, but it's really given them a lot of flexibility, especially with Javier Baez having a rough spring and Alcantara being off to a slow start and everything. It gives you that that solid presence in center field that otherwise they probably wouldn't have had. Yeah, I mean, you think about what what they would have done in the alternative. You know, probably Arizmendi Alcantara is playing center field every day, and uh, obviously he went through a very rough stretch to start the year. Um, and then you look at Tommy Lastella gets hurt, Javier Baez maybe isn't ready to be with the team. I mean, it, the, the interesting side effect of not having Fowler could have been that the bench could have been just absolutely wrecked. And um, so that's that's been a really important thing to have, not only at the top of the order, not only defensively in center field, but just to have that position stabilized and allow the Cubs more flexibility to be able to do something crazy, like, for example, carrying three catchers, which... It's just about impossible to do in the National League, and they've been able to pull it off. Fowler kind of came over with a reputation for being a subpar defender, and uh, he's impressed me so far. Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting. Um, the center field that he's playing in his home park now in Wrigley Field is, is very small. The alleys are very small um, uh, compared to the average park, and he's coming from having played at Coors Field uh, and Minimade, where the set, where center field is just an adventure. And so you had to wonder how much of his reputation defensively had to do with his home park, had to do with defensive positioning. Uh, he's now playing a little bit deeper with the Cubs. Um, but, yeah, to, to my eye, he has looked certainly at least adequate in center field. And 
um, obviously with his bat, that's really all you need him to be. Yeah, and coming up, he didn't really have a reputation for being a bad defender. He was kind of thought of as a plus defender when he was uh, a prospect coming up through the system. So. Yeah, a guy with good good range, good arm. I mean, you can see the athleticism, so it's not hard to see. Um, and, and, and the other thing is, when a guy's been playing center field in the big leagues for seven years or so, and, and team after team is giving him a chance in center field, clearly they're seeing something that maybe the metrics aren't picking up. So Kyle Hendricks has struggled a little bit, but not nearly as bad as his numbers would indicate. No, it's kind of been a... I kind of had to step back today and, and rethink uh, about how he's performed. And, you know, everything's small sample at this, at this point in the season, but um, when, when a guy is, um, is left on base percentage, right, so the, the, the rate at which batters who get on are, are being stranded is only 60%, and that's just tiny. That's, that's super low. That means that um, unless the pitcher has a fundamental problem when when batter or when runners get on base, if something you know he, he can't handle it for some reason, unless you get that situation, and I don't think we have that with Hendricks, then that just means that the pitcher is getting pretty unlucky with the order in which hits are taking place. Um, and we've seen that with him. We've had these big innings where it's just sort of a hit after hit after hit. We saw that. I remember right from thing one against the Rockies, he had that one inning where just kind of fluky hit after hit after hit. Um, because everything else that he's been showing in terms of the stuff, in terms of strikeouts, his walks are still minuscule like they always are. Um, he's striking out more batters. He's getting ground balls. Uh, you know, he, he's been pitching really well. It's just that the results haven't been great. And so it's interesting because last year was kind of the opposite. His results were probably a little better than uh, his underlying performance would have suggested. So, Maybe this is a little bit of an evening out, and you know, I think in the fullness of time we'll see what he really is, which is probably a very good back of the rotation type starter. I think I think we just need to give him some time. And when you look at other fifth starters around the league, you know, with with Travis Wood having a, a strong start and uh, Jason Hamill has been fairly effective, you're really looking into Hendricks as being a fifth starter. And uh, compared to what you see around the rest of the league, there's really not much of a gap there, so it's nothing to be overly concerned about. Sure, and especially with the way uh, pitchers are getting hurt these days, I'm, I'm sure there are probably 20 teams out there that would love to have Hendricks at the back of their rotation. Of course, then that invites the question that what happens to the Cubs if they should uh, suffer the injury bug in the middle of their rotation and Hendricks sort of has to bump up to closer to the middle of the rotation. You know, then it becomes a little dicier, but I, I guess we'll cross that bridge if and when uh, that happens. Well, and if that happens, you have uh, Suyushi Wada in the minors kind of ready to, to come in and, and contribute if needed, right? Yeah, he's been rehabbing a groin injury from spring training, but at this point it kind of seems more like he's over the groin injury, He but his you know readiness for the season was slowed. Um, so he's technically on a rehab assignment at AAA Iowa, but really that's just a way of having him at Iowa and getting, getting ready um, should an opportunity present itself and you know, it'll be interesting what the Cubs do when that rehab assignment is up in about two weeks. It, it, you know, if something organically hasn't presented itself, it'll be interesting to see what the Cubs decide to do with him. Let's put on the GM hat a little bit because word that the Cubs have stayed in contact with the Phillies about Cole Hamels is out there. And I had a, a nice little debate uh, with a couple of Cubs tweeters on Twitter uh, earlier today about what a return for Hamels might look like. And uh, one of the guys proposed uh, Schwarber, Almora, Torres, and Pierce Johnson, which I thought including Schwarber as opposed to 
uh, perhaps Javier Baez or Dan Vogelbach or Billy McKinney or any combination of the three uh, would make more sense for the Cubs, especially given the strong free agent class of pitchers next offseason. Uh, am I crazy, or is, is that really a, a realistic return for a guy like Cole Hamels? No, I don't think you're crazy, and I think it depends a lot on how you view Kyle Schwarber. Um, you know, every, I, think, I think most evaluators accept that he's got a big league caliber bat, um, I think where the debate arises on him is in two ways. One, is it an elite big league bat? And two, is he going to be able to play any catcher uh, at the big league level, even just a couple days a week? And if you believe that he can play a couple days a catcher, and if you believe that the bat is elite, then you're talking about the caliber of prospect that you just you almost wouldn't trade for anybody. And it depends on who you ask, uh, both with the Cubs and external evaluators. But increasingly, and, and boy, he's not doing anything to dissuade this idea, increasingly I think the Cubs do view him in that tier at the very top with their very best positional prospects. And, man, I, just, I, don't, I don't know that they would include him in a deal for Hamill, even if the Phillies were eating, eating salary. So the nice thing about the Cubs system right now, of course, is that they could put together a reasonable package for Hamels if, if the Phillies are going to be reasonable about it uh, without including a, a Schwarber or obviously a Bryant or a Russell. Um, but it does it is going to have to involve some of those that next tier best names. You know, Glaber Torres is that guy's legit, man. He is killing it right now at full season ball as an 18 year old shortstop who can stick at shortstop. Uh, I mean, I don't think it'll be long before we're talking about him as, you know, a top-50 prospect in baseball. So he's very legit. Pierce Johnson, of course, uh, is still at extended spring training right now, getting over a lat injury. So the, the extent to which that compromises his value is probably debatable. And, you know, you've got C.J. Edwards, and you've got the Billy McKinney's, you've got Almora. You know, you've got that range of guys where I think you could put together a package. And for me, it's just a matter of is, is going after Hamels going to be the right approach for the Cubs versus picking up a rental and then and then diving into free agency after the season. Well, and if you talk about uh, Schwarber's value, even if he doesn't stay at catcher, it's starting to look increasingly like uh, the National League could possibly have the DH as early as 2017. Now, I know it's, it's not the same value being a DH as it is being a catcher, but it does give you a place to put that big bat if he doesn't pan out behind the plate. And, and so he still would hold some National League value there, uh, especially if he has the elite bat. Sure. And you can talk there, too, about a guy like Dan Vogelbach, who mm-hmm. maybe doesn't even look like he can play first base uh, at the big league level. And um, Certainly, you know, you wouldn't... I, I, my opinion is I don't know that I would make any organizational decisions based on the anticipation of the DH, because... I still think it's maybe a close call of whether it's coming. Maybe as we get a little bit closer and sort of the substantive negotiations um, pick up uh, as we get later in this year, um, then maybe you start thinking about it. But for now, I guess I would just agree with you that it's nice to think about the possibility of of not feeling like you have to create space for all these these big bats because you know uh, there's a chance that there's going to be another spot. What's a realistic timeline for Javier Baez? I mean, his, it, there's so many mechanical changes he needs to make to his swing, and for a young player, well, even for an older player, it's so difficult to kind of step out of your comfort zone and make those changes. Uh, is it possible that he can really figure things out 
this year, or or is this kind of this, a situation where the Cubs really want him to just kind of take a year and try to get comfortable with some of those new adjustments? Well, I, you know, we should lead off by saying, in terms of purely from a baseball perspective, it's unfortunate that he missed a month, you know, there at Iowa after the death of his sister. That's, of course, not the most important thing, you know, him, him, him dealing with that and grieving and uh, getting the space that he needed is the most important thing. But I'm just saying, in terms of his development, it's unfortunate not to have that month. Um, and so it's a really good question about um, what's going to make the most sense for him in terms of you got a guy that you know is big league ready in terms of every other part of his game. Um, he could probably be helping the Cubs right now. Uh, you know, I think it's debatable whether he could actually be helping the Cubs more right now than Addison Russell. Um, but the question is, is that best for Javier Baez in the long run and in terms of both what he could bring to the Cubs and in terms of the asset value? Because even if you can do everything else really well, the bat is, you know, that's a good 70-80% of your value as a position player. And right now, he would not be a benefit to the Cubs with the bat. And so it's, um, it's, it's going to be interesting because I think there's probably two two potential courses of action with him, assuming he's not being thought of right now as purely a trade piece. If the Cubs are thinking he has the potential to contribute to them, I think they either give him a couple months, see how the adjustments are going, and they say, well, it's either taking or it's not. We need to see him against big league pitching. He can contribute in other ways. Let's just go ahead and get some value out of him right now. Uh, or the alternative is they give him a really long time to work on it at AAA. And, you know, it, at that point, <clears throat> it becomes real dicey if, 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 if it doesn't seem like he's going to be able to make these adjustments that are going to give him a chance to be successful in the big leagues. Then you start to have some serious questions about what his future is going to look like. And, you know, I, I guess <laughs> right now you just, uh, I don't know, you hope, that, you hope that he looks like he's taking to it over the next month or so. And then, and then you kind of re, reevaluate. Well, let's close on a little bit of a uh, more positive note. You know, I'm at Wrigley quite a bit covering games, and the attitude and atmosphere around this team is unbelievably positive. I mean, everybody looks like they're having fun. Uh, when you're talking to the players before or after the game, uh, you can tell they're enjoying their time at the field. Joe Madden's really implemented a culture change incredibly quickly here. Yeah, like uh, the fact that they have disco parties after the wins in the clubhouse is um, yeah, obviously it's heartening just as a fan because that's just a fun thing to think about. But it also, you know, if you're on a team that's that's maybe only winning, you know, four or five out of ten games, not necessarily expected to be competitive, um, you're not you're not going to be celebrating every win in that same way. You know, you, you'll be excited about wins. Of course, you want to win every day. But if you didn't feel like it was really building towards something, if you, if you didn't feel like there's something here, I just don't think you would have that same celebratory attitude every day. And, and I, I do think you're right that so much of that is attributable to just the way Joe Madden not only carries himself, not only the cachet that he brings with him, but also just an attitude about, um, you know, I don't know, a joie de vie, to, to borrow something that I could hear him saying. Uh, is just just a, a way of enjoying the moment uh, that is so perfect for this young team. Um, I think we're probably going to look back in the coming years at the extreme fortuitousness of him becoming available right now at this moment for this Cubs team. I mean, that was just 
perfectly, magically synchronized in a way that things haven't broken the Cubs' way over the last uh, many, many years. And so that, that might be something of a turning point. All right, well, he's the founder and uh, the head dog over at BleacherNation.com, which is a phenomenal Cubs website. If you're not familiar with it, you should get familiar with it. You can find him on Twitter at BleacherNation, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash BleacherNation. He's Brett Taylor. Brett, thanks so much for taking the time, and we'll uh, do it again. Yeah, that sounds good. Thank you so much for having me on. All right, one final thought before we close it out for the week. I have a problem with the scheduling for the Blackhawks Wild second-round playoff series. I understand it's a Western Conference series, so you're going to get later starts. And during the week, those starts are going to be at night. That's understandable. But on the weekends, for games to be scheduled at 7 or 7.30 or 8 or 8.30 is short-sighted on the part of the NHL. Young fans will not be able to watch these games, particularly an 8.30 start. Now, my son is too young to watch hockey or care about hockey. He's only 10 months old. But I have three nephews who are just at the age where they are getting very into hockey. And that young viewership is what this league needs so badly. So when they can't watch a game on Sunday, particularly a playoff game, a high-energy, high-paced, high-excitement playoff hockey game, because it's starting late on a school night, what does that do for the NHL going forward? How does that engage the younger audience and build a fan base for the future? The simple fact of the matter is it doesn't. Now, if they're playing on a Sunday, there's no reason why the game can't start at 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock or even 5 o'clock. But to start it at 7 or 8 o'clock, makes no sense, particularly when both teams are in the central time zone. This is a classic example of the NHL dropping the ball when it comes to building the future of its brand. And that'll do it for this week's episode of the Second Winded Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Robinson. Special thanks to Brett Taylor from BleacherNation.com. He had great stuff on the Cubs. We'll be back next week. Until then, go to SportsOfTheSecondCity.com for plenty of writing on all of Chicago's pro sports teams. Thanks for listening. So long.